I haven't even made my obligatory cup of bovril today. We're going to get a sponsorship cup. Yes. Maybe we should ask them. Hi, I'm Fraser Medvicorn. I'm Roisin Caird. And I'm Johnny Rhodes. And welcome to True Scotsman, the history and current affairs podcast where we delve into a variety of topics and dispel your illusions. We have fun making them and hope you have fun listening to them. I'm all right, feeling festive. I'm in a Christmas jumper and I've eaten exactly 200 pounds of reindeer flesh. Uh, it's the only time I break my vegetarianism. Uh, how about you guys? Vegetarian, f- uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say vegetarian flesh is very expensive, which is probably true. But reindeer meat, I've actually looked this up. It's quite expensive. It's about 50 pounds a kilo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's why Johnny only eats it once a year. Yeah, makes sense. I mean... I think they have quite a lot of it up in Lapland, right? It's cheaper if you hunt it yourself. Amazingly, Ryanair does excellent flights to the north of Sweden. And especially if you say that you're going to essentially strip naked and run through the forest chasing the deer down with your bare hands. There's a discount Mm. for that. Yeah, The code is werewolf, if you're wondering. Cool, we'll look that up. Uh, Just in time for Christmas. Well, it's going to be a push now, but I think you can get there. Yeah, nice Christmas film. Mm. My favourite thing about Christmas, and I, this is probably starting off a bit early, is the mince pies. Mm. I seriously must be drink, eating like a, a pack every three days or something like this. Yeah, at least a pack every three days. Is that why this episode is uh, sponsored by Big Mince Pie? Uh, yeah, Big Mince Pies all over this. Yeah. Uh, Just like they sponsored the war in Iraq. Their tentacles are everywhere. Yeah, Halib- Mr Kipling has a lot of blood on his hands. I'm not sure how he can go back to Mrs. Kipling with a smile on his face. But he wasn't happy with doing all that imperialistic poetry back in the, like, you know, empire days in the early 20th century. No, he had to, you know, expand his reach beyond his natural lifespan. Exactly. He slapped Cecil Rhodes on the back and said, you know what, buddy? We haven't gone far enough. Carry the white man's burden a little longer. How can I make a pastry-based Gatling gun? That is the question. Well, after what is done to my insides, it is indeed a pastry-based Gatling gun. Oh, what an image. That's a stocking stuffer for you, literally. Christmas in Scotland. What's what's what do you think? What do you what do you know? Well, from personal experience, my family has always been almost American in their celebrations of Christmas and I mean that in the most positive way to our American cousins it's like we always used to heavily decorate the house put tinsel everywhere we had the massive um, Safeway plastic tree that we still use years later we were intensely into Christmas it was almost a religion in this house so yeah uh, I have fond memories of Christmas in Scotland I the only really Scottishy traditions I have associated with it are like bad cracker jokes and Christmas cards with weird puns and um, 
yeah, that's about it. And I guess Turkey and other things that the rest of the world do. What about you guys? The most Scottishy thing about it for me is, is yeah, the I mean, the Americans don't give Santa mince pies. They give them milk and cookies. So that's that's a bit of a different thing. Um, since I'm, in, of course, in a mixed nation household and raising a new half Scottish, half American baby, I'm probably going to have to, you know, have a bit of cookies, have a bit of mince pies, just to make sure that, you know, we're re- well represented, that we have all nations involved here. Oh, no, that is a, a burden you're having to carry there, Fraser. Yeah, mince pies and cookies. That's so many. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Scottish Christmas for me. Um, so we always used to, uh, we'd have the, I, I remember lots of different things. Um, so we'd always have the presents, like, around the tree. Like, yeah, we'd always sort of, um, we do like stockings, but the stockings were like kind of smaller gifts. And then the next morning, and we, we would actually, so when we were younger, we'd leave out milk and cookies and a carrot for one of the reindeer. Then as we got older, uh, my dad started saying that he thought Santa might prefer beer instead. Uh, so we'd leave him out beer. Um, <laughs> and then the next year, your dad said he'd prefer vodka. And the next year, it was two bottles of vodka. And it was then and the year after that, he that just Santa cried. <laughs> he just He just sobbed. So they were asking us to leave out beer. Is it that's beer that my dad brought bought? Like it's not as if he didn't have that beer anyway, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, we we uh, the next morning we get up, we do breakfast together, and then like we'd all open a present like one at a time. Like my mom and dad would like have the presents and like hand them out to each other. We'd all open them together, uh, and then we'd have yeah, like um, you know, we just just have a day. And um, then we'd usually either go to my granddad's or my granddad and grandparents would come to us. Um, And uh, yeah, usually have a, so we'd either have the family dinner with them on Christmas or else we would do that on Boxing Day. That's good. Family is a big part of it, actually, because my main memories of Christmas, of course, my granny, she she used to always come over because Mm. there's another bit of alcohol here, which seems to be a very Scottish thing. My parents had a tradition of going to the pub on Christmas Eve at night. So essentially my granny would look after my brother and I, and then they would, we would go to bed generally before, like, you know, as kids, we would go to bed before they got home. And mm. they would just put out all the presents like right across the living room floor, like, you know, under the Christmas tree, but then also kind of just strewn all about the floor. Uh, and we'd always, so it's like when we were heading down at like six in the morning or something like this, we'd be walking down the staircase and my dad would be like, hang on, I need to check if Santa's been in. And then he'd open the door and he'd just make sure that everything was kind of like properly <laughs> set up just to kind of like build up the kind of magic and majesty of this. I was sometimes, mm. I, I sometimes thought to myself, what's, he, what's, what's Santa done? What's, what's he le- has he not left or something? Is, is, is this the <laughs> situation that's developed? What's, what, where's my dad? <laughs> Come back. Yeah. See, my family are, are not big drinkers. Um, and so... My little sister has kind of revived your family's tradition in a way, Fraser. She used to, before, you know, the pandemic, um, she used to go out clubbing on Christmas Eve. And we always used to find that really strange. But apparently that's a really popular modern custom. It's like Christmas Eve, you want to be in Hive, apparently, which uh, Ah. I've never wanted to be in Hive. So, yeah, apparently 
the place you want to be when there's magic in the air is the place you are when there's chlamydia in the air. So yeah, the place the magic goes are. to die. Yeah. I can't think of anything more unchristmassy than the hot dog served on the dance floor of Hive Till Five. But you know, that's why I'm not in Hollywood right now writing Christmas films. I just don't have that vision. I mean, it's quite, it's quite appropriate that hope goes to die there and it's actually a basement. So it's like you're already buried. You're already underground. Yeah. yeah. Plus, you're around a lot of people who have names like Hope who are there just to witness as the Christmas spirit really fades from your eyes. Mm. <laughs> so what do you want to tell us about Christmas, Johnny? Now, I do not want to tell you about Hive, strangely enough. We actually have to go back to a time long before Hive was even a twinkle in old Father Christmas's eyes. We even have to go back before Christianity, because as any edgy 13-year-old will tell you around the Christmas table, uh, Christmas is actually based on pagan traditions, not Christian traditions. And like they expect their elderly relatives to go, oh my goodness. But yeah. It's true. And Scotland especially, uh, some of the earliest celebrations of what we might dub Christmas or Yuletide celebrations, Yule of course coming from a Norse word, um, actually stem way back to at least 2700 BC. So 2000, nearly 3000 years before the birth of Jesus and the start of, you know, the first Christmas, we have evidence in Scotland itself of people celebrating a holiday around this time of year. Now, of course, they were celebrating the solstice. Now, we have no idea why they were celebrating. You know, they didn't leave any notes that they were celebrating it because, you know, it was the time they got gifts or it was the time the Vicar of Dibley was on or it was the time it was fine to eat five Terry's chocolate oranges in one go and then throw up in an orange chocolatey mess. But what we do know from archaeological evidence from uh, the Orkney Isles is that you know they built buildings specifically to commemorate it in a way. So for example, you can see to this day on webcam, um, the buildings have been built so that when the winter sun is in the position it would be on the shortest day of the year, it will shine through the chamber from one like entrance to the other in almost like a perfect line. And this is incredible when you consider the time, you know, they didn't have telescopes or um, Brian Cox to tell them any of this. They just had to build these buildings based off basically ancestral knowledge. And that's the earliest evidence in Scotland itself that people were doing something to celebrate a midwinter's holiday. And that goes back nearly 3000 years before the birth of Jesus. It's either it's uh, a sign that Christmas celebrated in Scotland thousand years or it's an incredible coincidence Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, there's a lot of debate over how close the solstice and Christmas are as holidays, which one borrowed from the other, etc. But, you know, at the very least, we can say that if you're around the 25th of December, give or take a week or two uh, in Scotland, 3,000 years ago, there would have been a holiday of some kind, which, you know, considering the amount of time we're dealing with is incredible. That's like before the founding of the Roman Republic. That's before Pericles. That's back mm. in pyramid building days. So that's really old history in terms of Christmas, Yuletide, the solstice in Scotland. So uh, yeah, if anyone ever says to you, oh, the modern celebration of Christmas, just like with Halloween, is an American injection into Scottish society, uh, you can just hit them with that fun fact that apparently we've been celebrating, let's call it Christmas light for about 3,000 years. 
in fairness, I'm not sure if I've ever heard anyone say that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's not a common issue you're going to deal with. You're not going to be at the bus I think if anything, we, I, I, think we, I think Christmas might predate America. <laughs> <laughs> you, do get, you do get a lot of people... Like, Fun fact where they say Santa's colours were changed by Coke. Coca-Cola. People say it used to be green, but then it got changed to red later on. Uh, any any word, word on that one, Johnny, or is that just... Yeah, well, there is actually a fair amount of evidence for that. It is disputed. The problem with cultural facts like that is that culture is so fluid and so, you know, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey that it is quite hard to say when something definitively happened. Now, it does make sense giving Santa himself and his pagan origins. You know, he's linked with Odin and the Norse pantheon. He's linked with German and Slavic legends and Dutch legends and elves and goblins and all that stuff. It makes sense that he would wear green because green was a colour of hope and fertility and life. And so for a figure who would come around at this time of year when life was darkest and the crop season seemed so far away and people were dying of cold and exposure, to wear red, the colour of blood, the colour of violence, didn't, wouldn't make a lot of sense. So I do believe, um, and what I've been able to read, is that Santa's earliest colour would have been green. Was it Coca-Cola that made them red? That's very much up for dispute, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it'll appear on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and, you know, if they ever bring that back and it'll Probably be a million dollar question. Yeah, okay, or QI. Just on the thing of uh, winter festivals that we were saying before, I mean, I think it also kind of, like, I mean, basically makes sense when Scotland's so far from the equator, um, especially if we're talking like the very, very north, like when you have like such distinct seasons, you know, and you believe that those seasons are directly and the effect and outcome of them, and therefore, you know, the life of your family is kind of dependent on how well you celebrate or show your thanks to such and such a deity. You know, you're gonna you're gonna make a big deal out of it. You know, when it's at the darkest time. Oh, of course. You know, it's um. You can imagine some of these communities. They're living at a time when you know Neil Oliver put it great in his book Vikings. You know. You see the northern lights up above, um, especially at this time of year. You know, the days are dark and long, especially in the far north. You know, you get very little natural daylight and there's no explanation for it whatsoever. So you are kind of scrambling around being like, whatever power is controlling all this incredible natural wonder around me, I better make sure it's happy or I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. Aurora Borealis, at this time of the year, in this part of the world, localized entirely within your kitchen. I like how you said that, Fraser. It sounded like a Harry Potter spell, like Aurora Borealis. It's, uh, it's, from, the, it's from The Simpsons, the steamed ham sketch. Oh, right. Yeah, I thought you were just quoting a, a spell that uh, caused transphobia, but that's just me. Yeah, so by about the time of the Vikings raiding Scotland in the late 700s, uh, there had been introduced new traditions. Uh, the Vikings celebrated a holiday known as Yule, which became Yule. That's where we get things like the Yule Log, which today just seems to be a weird piece of Tesco's chocolate. And it was celebrated uh, for roughly around like 12 days. Uh, there was ideas linked to this that apparently radiate through to our modern society. So you might have heard of first footing um, around New Year's. One theory is that the reason we say during first footing, that has to be a dark-haired gentleman who steps into your house first. 
is because fair hair was associated with the Vikings. You know, they're from Norway, Sweden, etc. Famously blondish countries. If you've ever seen Eurovision, you'll know that. And the idea being that the Vikings were raiders and they brought all this destruction. So the first person you want entering your house is not a raider, but a dark-haired gentleman who's going to bring good luck and good fortune. And of course, there's kind of uh, traditions linked off to this. Like some people do first-footing buns, which contain little trinkets in them and cinnamon and things like that. I personally, my family do first-footing, but we've never done like a first-footing bun. Like I keep reading about it, but I've never encountered it in person. How about you guys? I did demand my friend brings uh, salt, vinegar, and I think it was matches or something like this. And that was just purely because I'd heard salt was supposed to be for like you know good flavor. Vinegar, I think, was just because I needed vinegar, and uh, matches was just because you know you want something to start a fire for the year. Mm. What about you, Roshin? Have you did you do first footing around Hogmanay? I don't know if we kept it particularly uh, stringent or strict. Like it was never like but we definitely like went to each other's houses after the bells that was definitely a thing you would call it first footing definitely mm. yeah and of course first footing we more commonly associate with new year's eve and hogmanay and all those kind of traditions but you know scotland still has somehow managed to create its own unique christmas traditions even though it wasn't a major thing here uh, kind of sticking with our timeline, you know, after the Vikings, we obviously had Christianity arrive and that brought with it Christmas itself. Uh, the Romans settled on uh, the idea that Christ's birthday was the 25th of December in around the 200 AD period. And for years, yeah, Christmas was just a very common and normal holiday. But by the 1500s, all across Europe, this was not just a Scottish problem. It became kind of a time for revelry and mayhem. Like people would use the 12 days of Christmas to get drunk and go around their friend's house and get up to all kinds of like mischief. And it kind of was like a cross between New Year's Eve and Halloween in many regards. It wasn't the quiet religious ceremony we imagine from a Charles Dickens novel. It was quite boisterous. And of course, with the name Chris Space Mass, it was closely associated with the Catholic Church. So then we have a man by the name of John Knox enter the scene. And in 1560, uh, when Scotland split from the Catholic Church, Christmas began to kind of fall out of favour. So, for example, in 1583, the Glasgow Kirk at St. Mungo's Cathedral um, basically ordered the excommunication of anyone who celebrated youth Christmas. Uh, whilst in Scotland, crimes like singing a Christmas carol were considered serious crimes. And... After a build-up of like this kind of tension over the holiday for years, in 1640, Parliament finally banned Christmas. They said it's illegal. Any celebrations of the Yuletide were out of the question. Now, people think this ban was in place for like hundreds of years. It actually was repealed in 1712. Like, Parliament kind of eased off. They were like, yeah. We've literally become a parliament of aristocratic Grinches. It was repealed by the, the Westminster Parliament, though I don't think better together we'll use that in the next campaign. Like, we saved Christmas. Um, but basically, the church continued to frown upon it, and punishments carried out and continued, you know, whippings and public shamings and, you know, a lot of wagged fingers in the directions of those who dared to celebrate Christmas. And famously, it wasn't until 1958 that Christmas Day itself was made a holiday in Scotland. 
that means kids getting the day off school, people not going to work. It's an insane sort of development. One of the things that I have heard is it was kind of, uh, so part of Christmas was based off of Saturnalia. Mm-hmm. So Saturnalia was, of course, the Roman, uh, was the Roman type, was the Roman name for the celebration. It was like a week-long thing that was very much in the spirit of Carnival, you know, like this the separation of um, master and slave. They were kind of like, you know, putting the opposite angles and playing opposite roles and things like this. Uh, so I could I could see how that would kind of also fit into John Knox's whole thing against popery because you know he was he wasn't a fan of he wasn't a fan of Rome was he? No, in fact he even deliberately it's I'll, I'll have to look from my notes to find the quote but he he even singled out in particular like Saint Nicholas despite the fact he himself looked like Santa. It's a ridiculously fun fact that John Knox Santa impersonator hated the real life Santa <laughs> like you know he said like celebrations of things like Saint Nicholas Day and saints and stuff was evil and unchristian so yeah it would not surprise me yes it's, it's a really peculiar thing so Saint Nicholas is pretty peculiar because he's the patron saint of children but then also the patron saint of assassins well what if you're a child assassin he is doubly your saint I mean what a guy you know he's really sticking to his demographic yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a bit niche, in a sense. Child assassins has got to be a fairly small category. Mm. Now, some Scottish people did try to merge the new anti-Catholic attitudes with, like, still celebrating Christmas, because Christmas was still popular. Like, uh, for example, in 1583, five Glaswegians were taken before, like, the church, and had to make public repentance for keeping Christmas. And the Scottish church banned bakers from making mince pies. This was similar to what the Puritans did in England and America. So, you know, if you've ever wondered why mince pies contain fruit instead of meat, that's why mince pies made with meat were banned. And so as a sort of way around the law, they'd make them with fruit. Mince pies also often used to feature little effigies of Jesus on them, like the little baby Jesus, why you celebrate the birth of your savior by eating him? Well, I, I just described, you know, the Eucharist, but still, why you'd celebrate in that way, I don't personally understand, but that's what they used to do. But of course, that went out of fashion. And uh, so, yeah, mince pies became smaller and they stopped containing meat. And get this in 1680, Edinburgh University, um, to basically show that they could both celebrate Christmas and hate the Pope. Uh, they celebrated Christmas, the students there, by burning an effigy of the Pope. That sounds a lot like the Edinburgh University that I went to. Yep. A lot of Pope effigy burnings back in back in our old Edinburgh days, eh, Fraser? You couldn't get to a tutorial without the fumes and the ash of an effigy burning. It's calmed down with Pope Francis, but it really used to be an issue. Well, the thing is, what they had to do is just declare the Pope was a lad. And therefore, because that you know they've got that whole anti-lad culture thing going on, then you were allowed yeah, to what, images of them. What's it? The tab had to endorse him, and as soon as that was done, well, suddenly he was welcomed back into the flock. <laughs> so yeah. So um, now there's a lot of Scottish Christmas traditions. Now I'm from a Scottish family, you know, Northern family, etc. And like, there's a lot of Christmas Scottish traditions that I'll admit never were a part of my sort of like upbringing. So I just want to run them by you in case you've heard of them. So for example, baking unleavened Yule bread for each person in the family and baking a trinket into it. Have you guys any experience of 
not whatsoever. Unleavened, you say? Yes. No. Wait, what was unleavened? Sorry. The Yule bread, apparently. Uh, yeah, we never to... had bread. We didn't have we didn't have Yule bread. To be honest, we never even my parents don't like turkey, so we didn't even do turkey at Christmas. Wow. A gluten-free mm. and a turkey-free Christmas. Mm-hmm. Just a bowl of Brussels sprouts served cold in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And then a good really? heart-rending watch of the Queen's speech before bed. Christmas at no, the only The only one that I remember, I remember we had salmon one year. Oh, we had monkfish. That was pretty good. Um, yeah, my parents were like big on cooking, but they, they both hate turkey. I remember I had a, an argument with my aunt one time because she gave me a turkey sandwich. I was like, wow, I've never had turkey before. And she was like, yes, you have. You've had it at Christmas. And I was like, no, I haven't. And then we had a fight. <laughs> it was a stressful time. What a very peculiar fight. Um, you know, I- at Christmas time in uh, London, to get the turkeys to the rich people, we used to walk them from Norfolk to London. And one way to preserve the turkey's feet was they would tar them um, because you don't want them getting like all hurt and worn down or unable to walk. So they would just tart the feet of these turkeys and then just force march them to London to their death. If you think about it, that is a lot more logical than tarring the roads because the road surface, there's so much more of that than there is turkey feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's more valuable, a turkey or a public highway? I mean, where is our tax money being spent if not on the tarring of birds that we're going to eat? But it's pretty, it's pretty wasteful that they had to do this to like hundreds of turkeys every year. If they would just, yeah. just tarred the roads, then it would probably save them a little bit of time. Turkey dipper used to be a completely different expression. Now, there's another Christmas tradition that's mentioned that, again, personally, I have no encounterance of, but I guess is a thing that some households do, and God bless them if they do. Burning of um, a sort of branch, if, you, um, if that rings any bells. I mean, we live so in a row and twig. Like- I feel like if you ah. if you live in like the city center, you know, you're you probably there's probably nowhere to really burn your rowan tree, you know? <laughs> yeah, this so maybe more of a rural tradition. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of I was I kind of grew up in a sort of rural type place. Yeah. And we didn't burn anything. Uh oh no, it would have been fun. But I I predict this is something about witches. Mm. Anytime you go to burn something, it tends to be something about witches that you know is chasing off the evil spirits. Well, that's kind of what burning the rowan twig was meant to do. It was meant to, like, remove bad feelings between family and friends. Like, that was the excuse for it. But again, I have, you know, never heard of, like, a person doing this. But I think that kind of hints to the diversity within Scotland's communities. Like how in Stonehaven, um, you know, at New Year's time, they have these sort of burning balls that they spin around each other. Or how mm. in, you know, Shetland you've had for at least 100 years... Um, which we don't really have anywhere else so you know it could be I could be saying this and it could be someone in East Kilbride who's like of course we burnt a rowan twig what what is this idiot on about like you know just because you know we didn't do it in Edinburgh and my part of the north doesn't mean you know it wasn't a common tradition but it is interesting just how many sort of little traditions like that about banishing bad spirits and bringing in good feelings there was all across the country well it sort of makes sense like have you ever noticed how scotland has such a kind of diversity of accents despite being like so much smaller than a place like america 
-hmm. a lot of it's because all the communities were fairly separate from one another and hardly got to meet each other apart from say the merchants who went from town to town or whatever most people like didn't talk to anyone even the next village over and that's why the way they spoke just totally developed differently so i can imagine that there's millions of christmas traditions which yeah like every every household almost has their own one yeah, it's also, I mean, it's like the thing uh, that comes up and I'm sure this will, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll both have feelings on this, but you know, when uh, people are like, well, Scotland's not really British, is it? It's more Irish or it's more Scandinavian. Uh, and it's a bit like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mixing pot of different cultures, which is interacted with over the millennia, just like everywhere else. Sure, you know, like, what, what does that mean? Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, kind of, it's sort of like that, like, you know, we have places, especially in the north, where the culture and even the language is incredibly different. Yeah, yeah no, of course. Like, I think you're exactly right, Roisin, in that our Christmas and New Year's traditions reflect the diversity of cultural influences on Scotland itself. You know, as I mentioned, Apelia is a very Viking celebration, or it appears to be, like, that's the image it's pushing out. And of course, Shetland and the Orkney Islands are famous for their Nordic connections. Uh, you know, it was the home of the first IKEA in Britain, he lied. You know, uh, there's just <laughs> things like that, that, you know, really kind of hint at that nature. So, no, exactly. It's, um, it's interesting to see how our holidays copy the diversity and reflect the diversity that Scotland has, which is great unless you're so ultra scott and you want to lie to everyone there is only one scottish culture and it's wearing kilts and it's you know doing this thing and that thing and eating haggis on a particular day actually you know there's many different scottish cultures and that's a great thing to have a conversation i'd love to have but which would take up like four episodes would be the fact that i think in the present in the current day actually a lot of Scottish culture is actually Glaswegian culture, which just because it's the biggest bit of the UK that or, or Scotland, that's where the kind of the television stuff tends to be focused. So that's yeah, the central belt. I mean, there's a big, there's a lot of issues with like focusing on the central belt for our media, um, and I guess maybe, and maybe this is total bollocks, but maybe a similar way to uh, England and London could be nonsense. Just this is, mm. this is a whole other episode for us. Um, yeah, I, what I was wondering, Johnny, uh, if you don't mind, is um, it's okay if you didn't look into this, but about how Scotland, how Christmas came back. Oh, no, I, I, I'm happy to say as much as a hack and a fraud as I am, I did look into this. Now, uh, what basically seems to have happened is there's a combination of reasons for it, like increased English immigration into Scotland, relaxing religious attitudes, uh, dawn of television, the influence of American culture. So it's not like there was one thing, like, I don't know, uh, the first ever showing of Miracle on 34th Street made Scott suddenly want to celebrate Christmas. It was just more a case of gradually easing attitudes. I mean, if you look, for example, at church attendance in 1950 versus 1958 when uh, Scotland officially made Christmas a public holiday again there was a dramatic decline in the number of people going into the church of Scotland and going to the regular parish so people were less strictly church of Scotland Presbyterian they were still Christian they would still call themselves Christian but the influence of the church had waned uh, the church itself had relaxed in many ways many of its more stricter groups had split off famously you have the we threes you know 
basically Scottish culture had evolved to the point that it was ready to make the change. And mm, so it, it, children... it evolved beyond the need for not having Christmas. Exactly. So kids stopped having their presents on New Year's Eve. They moved over to Christmas. People started putting up decorations and trees. Um, you know, there was a whole lot less finger wagging. You know, it was just um, a gradual development. And then we just took to it like a duck to water. But even then, you know, there were still holdovers. Boxing Day wasn't made a holiday in Scotland until the 1970s, whilst it's always basically been a holiday in England since at least the 1800s. So, you know, there were little hints at it. I mean, as late as 1939, for example, uh, there was a proposal to ease the blackout, you know, during the war uh, around Christmas so people could celebrate. And Scottish people responded like, well, no, that doesn't mean anything to us. We are celebrating New Year. So if you're going to use the blackout, you have to ease it a week later. We don't care if you ease it around, you know, the 23rd, 24th, 25th. That doesn't mean anything to us. So people were writing like letters to the Home Office and stuff saying like, oh, if you're going to use the blackout, you're going to have to ease it for us later on. So, you know, it was a very kind of rapid change. And all the influences I mentioned from American films to just... Um, increased cultural communication with television and radio basically ushered that in and we became as a result of globalization far more festive i like that it's it's always it's it's, it's kind of rare to find globalization doing something good like it's, especially today like globalization gets a really bad rap as being you know this great centralizing shibboleth which is like trying to eat everything and give everyone anxiety but every now and then globalization causes the scots to get christmas back which yeah i am not against <laughs> anyway guys so yeah that's kind of the long and short of it of christmas in scotland with a few overlaps into hogmanay uh, i want to wish all our listeners whatever holiday they celebrate the best kind of holiday and uh yeah just say that me personally i'm very glad that for whatever reason we brought christmas back because it is pretty nice true scotsman is a scottish history and culture podcast by roshin caird fraser medvedic horn and johnny rhodes the music is by adam logan each Saturday, we release a new episode exploring an aspect of Scottish history that we're interested in and that we want to tell you about. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support it, share the podcast around, tell your friends. We're here every week with a new episode for you.